ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Picture this. It's sunset. The sky is lit up in that gorgeous gradient of pink and orange and purple. And you're picnicking with the love of your life in the most picturesque location. There's a moment of comfortable silence between the two of you, and then it starts to happen. Oh my God, what are you doing down on your knee? He's looking up at you adoringly, and he pulls from his pocket a little velvet box, and inside, as you suspect, but don't dare to believe, inside is a tiny ring. Oh my God, it's finally happening. The moment you've dreamt of since you were a little girl. Will you marry me, he says. Yes, you cry. Tears stream down your face as you kiss your now fiancé. Soon you'll be a wife. And you'll get to spend the rest of your days living out your best life with your soulmate. Whew. We're taught to manifest marriage from the moment we're squeezed from our mother's wombs. The white dress, the ring, the picket fence and the adorable kids. But is marriage in any way good for us at all? Or is it, in fact, a giant shit sandwich? All of us kind of participate in this pantomime of what it is that we are supposed to want. One that we've all been gamed into gobbling down, crying, Mmm, delicious. Not only is this shit sandwich amazing, but my life would be meaningless without it. How many women do you know who privately confess, I wish I hadn't gotten married? I wish I hadn't changed my name. If I could do it all over again, I would have said no. I wish I'd gotten out earlier. We recorded this episode of Ladies We Need to Talk just two weeks after my own divorce became official. So naturally, I have some thoughts. It's an interview with feminist author and podcaster Clementine Ford, who's released a new book all about why marriage is terrible for women. It's called I Don't. Ladies, we need to talk about where the marriage is a sham with Clementine Ford. Clementine is no stranger to controversy. She often says really provocative things that others wouldn't dare say or even think. It means her call to arms for women to ditch the institution of marriage comes as no surprise. So I started by asking if marriage was something she fantasised about as a little girl. I never daydreamed about it. I didn't fantasise about it. In fact, I find it quite insulting that there's this sort of just general accepted view that all girls become women who want to be married. That's what we all want in the same way that, I mean, I do have a child and I love my child, but I know that there are plenty of child-free women out there who never had the urge to reproduce, who feel similarly aggrieved by this idea that to be a normal, quote-unquote, normal woman, this is what you aspire to, marriage and motherhood. So I never kind of daydreamed about it. I did assume, I think, that I would be married because that was the only thing that was kind of presented to me. What ends up happening when you persist with this view is that you provide women with no other options. You make everything else that we can achieve in our life some kind of secondary backup runners-up prize. You know, well, you didn't meet your soulmate. Oh, isn't that very sad? I mean, you got a PhD. You might have, like, 
made some great scientific discovery, but you didn't get married. <laughs> I'm sorry that all you did was cure cancer and oh. raise some beautiful cats. Like, that's terrible. There's always, every few years, there's some terribly written obituary that is circulated to people's laughter because she's introduced as being some guy's wife mm. and the mother of, you know, five children. Oh, and by the way, as you said, by the way, she cured cancer. I mean, but the thing is we laugh at those things, but we still to a degree, all of us kind of participate in this pantomime of what it is that we are supposed to want. So when you say that we all participate in the pantomime, what do you mean? Because a lot of us who, who listen to this podcast feel like, no, 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 we're, we're better than that or we're, we're more alert to it, to the hypocrisies than, than others. Are we complicit as well? Even for me, I have all these feelings about marriage I, and I know a lot about the history of it now and, I've, and I can make really cogent arguments to people about why women don't need it to be happy. But I went to my cousin's wedding recently. It was beautiful. She looked gorgeous. I really like her husband, you know. And someone would make the argument, well, you don't have to oppose those things and, you know, in order to be authentic in your argument against marriage. And that's true. And I don't believe that I should have to not celebrate the things that my friends and family find important. But there is an element of being complicit in that, because if I'm truly opposed to it, I should make a moral stand against it. Every tiny little brick that you put down helps to uphold the foundation and the wall of these systems that harm us. But for a long time, women didn't have much choice, did we? For hundreds of years, this system was called coverture and it was literally the covered woman. Women were covered by the authority of their father and then they were covered by the authority of their husband and they had no legal identity of their own. Anything they owned would be transferred into the ownership of their husband. Uh, you know, the fact that marital rape in this country, the last place to criminalise marital rape, was the Northern Territory in 1991. But these... You know, the states and territories didn't begin criminalising marital rape until the 1970s. All of these things are connected. And so one of my arguments is that we need to start being more honest with ourselves about what it is that we are overlooking when we participate in these institutions. We've come a long way since women were seen as property, I hope. Women can now choose to get married or not. So, Clementine, what is your main gripe with the institution of modern marriage? Marriage primarily services men and patriarchy at the expense of women and the exploitation of women's labour. But women are made to feel like unless we have it, we will be bereft of true life experience. So it's a big sham. So can I ask you, before we get into the deep of that idea, is there a difference between a de facto relationship and getting married? Is it the actual marrying that is the sham or is it partnerships in general? Relationships that are formed under patriarchal conditions can be just as much a shit sandwich for women and often are. The domestic labour, the mental load, we, I mean, these things are all trackable. We have statistics around the exploitation of women's labour. So whether or not someone's married or not doesn't erase the fact that they may be doing far more work in a relationship and they may be being disrespected in their own home and be, it being assumed that this is their job. The thing that marriage makes more difficult for women is leaving. Like dissolving a marriage is more expensive than dis dissolving a de facto partnership, even though dissolving a de facto partnership can still also be expensive. Marriage and divorce just adds extra layers and extra barriers to leaving that I think makes it more difficult. And my argument in the book is that the more marriages that 
a government, say, has on the books, the more marriages that they can point to as being, you know, this is the kind of society that we live in where people care about family values, the more able they are to get away with um, enforcing regressive social policies that prioritise small nuclear units over the collective whole. Clem, can you tell us about the origins of marriage? For most of human history, marriage, even as it evolved, was about building family ties. The idea that marriage should be about love and about two people entering into one siloed-off unit is really about 200 years old. And it's funny because actually when when the conventions around marriage and this idea that love should be a necessary part of it began being introduced and discussed, older people were like, that is crazy. Marriage can't have anything to do with love because love is too flimsy to base something as important as a marriage on. Prior to this, kinship and empire building was the goal of marriage, was to build strong financial empires, which is why women were essentially traded amongst men to basically build their property portfolios. Clem, can I bring us into the 21st century? Because I think this is where we all picture, you know, the bended knee, the ring in the box, the, mm-hmm. the sunset, and that romantic kind of almost orgasmic moment where you finally feel like you've, you've slotted into the narrative. Mm. It's such a major thing. And I, in your book, you talk about people who really weren't into marriage, but they were proposed to and just went along with it because they were so swept up in that slotting in and belonging feeling. Can you tell us about what the hell goes on when someone proposes? I think that's such a good way of putting it, slotting into the narrative. It's like this idea of neatly falling into what it is that you think a woman is supposed to be or what you've been told a woman is supposed to be. You have to remember as well that marriage and part of marriage as propaganda is very much told by romantic fairy tales, romantic comedies, and then it finishes with the happy ever after, the marriage. She has made it. A man has chosen her to be the one that he loves for the rest of his life. And in doing so, he has seen her and he brings her into into full form in the eyes of society. Mm. And that is a very compelling and persuasive magical spell to cast on someone, this idea that prior to the man choosing you, you're sort of just floating through life. Even if you don't believe that to be the case, when the narrative turns up on your doorstep and says, we're choosing you for the role today, honey, I think a lot of women are like, whoa, well, I mean, I've seen this happen to other people my whole life and I've never particularly wanted it, but now I have this opportunity to be part of it. Mm. And it's kind of like I make the argument in the book that it's like finding a dress on sale and thinking, well, I mean, I don't love it, but, like, <laughs> if I don't get it, I might go home and regret that I never bought the dress. Well, it's more than that, isn't it? This is the only dress? This might <laughs> this be the, the only, only dress. dress. This might be the only time I find this particular sort of ugly dress on sale. <laughs> you know, my friend says that um, we get to our 30s and we're all made to believe that we're playing some big game of musical chairs and the music stops and it's like, well, this is the chair I'm sitting on. Sometimes I feel like I wish I could get all of the people who've done this and who've been compelled by this under like a truth spell or something and say, well, really, was it just were you in love with him or was it just that he was there? And I'm, I know that that comes across as being quite mean-spirited to women and I want to make it very clear that I'm not being mean-spirited. It is 
as I said, an incredibly compelling narrative and it's hard for people to resist. Well, that's one of the things you talk about in your book, which I really found so compelling. A public proposal on, for instance, an aeroplane where the pilot makes the message over the loudspeaker so everybody knows what's going on. At no point really are you being asked for consent. No, and that that actually was a story that happened to a friend of mine. The interesting thing about that was that they'd only been going out for a short time, I think 11 months. She had been very clear with this guy that she wasn't interested in marriage at all. And, you know, obviously he didn't pay attention to that because his his narrative was that he wanted to marry her. And so he just ploughed on ahead with it. He conscripted or kind of invited her friends and family into this, again, I'm going to use the word pantomime. And Funnily enough, they all said afterwards, like, I don't know why I went along with it because I knew that she didn't want to get married. right. So they, but they got sucked in. They got sucked into the narrative. It's this big romantic fairy tale. And he asked her father's permission, her hand, and her father was like, well, it's really nothing to do with me. You're going to have to ask her. But it was all this sort of like you go through the steps and this is the romantic storyline that people follow. It's the script. He proposed to her on a plane and You can't, you really can't escape a plane, particularly not when you're flying over an ocean. And she said in the moment, she started crying and said yes, because even she was swept up in it. But then when he went to the bathroom moments later, she said she looked at the ring twinkling on her finger and she suddenly felt dread because she knew deep in her heart of hearts that she didn't want to marry this person. She didn't want to get married at all, but she knew she didn't want to marry this man. But she said yes, because she was like, this was the story. This was the story and I suddenly, on being presented with it, I suddenly felt, well, I'm I'm kind of a part of it now and that's sort of exciting. How can you say no when the only script and storyline you've ever been presented with your whole life has you saying yes? <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Let's talk about the agency of the individual though. Doesn't the woman have at some point the power to go, all right, no, I don't want to marry you? Of course in some cases. But, you know, there's agency and then there's social scripting. And yes, we can say, well, at any point we could say no. But it's also really, really difficult to reject social conditioning and to reject this idea that this is what we should do. This is what we should want. You and I both know so many women, and this becomes so much more apparent as you kind of head to middle age as well, when women leave the kind of ingenue years and they suddenly are more forthright about their choices and more forthright about their agency, partly because they're just fucking tired of doing what everyone wants all the time and being the good girl. But how many women do you know who privately confess, I wish I hadn't gotten married? I wish I hadn't changed my name. If I could do it all over again, I would have said no. I wish I'd gotten out earlier. Women are expected to live so sacrificially Mm. all the time that we have to park our own ambitions, we have to park our own happiness because we've got to do it for the family. And I always say there's no prize at the end of life for who suffered the most. (laughs) What? Are you sure? (laughs) This idea of living sacrificially, to me it seems from observation and experience that the moment the vow is confirmed, the marriage vow is confirmed, the level of sacrifice on the woman's part is dialed up. Absolutely. Why is that? Well, I think that it's just because, particularly when you're talking about 
men and women marrying, although this does happen in same-sex relationships as well, that patriarchal coding positions women as the sacrificer. And it goes back to the 19th century idea of the Victorian angel of the house. So in the 19th century, a poet called Coventry Patmore, which if you wrote it in a book, your editor would be like, is this a satire? <laughs> Coventry Patmore wrote a poem called The Angel of the House. And it was it was about his wife, Emily, who he clearly did not know at all, but he spoke of in this kind of like sacrificial love. She's the domestic angel. Mm -hmm. She's the one who, you know, does everything and she takes such good care of us. And it's really like it's Madonna whore kind of mentality. So the Madonna is the angel of the house who sits up on the pedestal and kind of floats above everyone and you can't really ever see her because she's so high above everyone, which means you never have to actually take care of her. The angel of the house can never be human because humans are fallible and they have needs and they have wants and desires. But the angel of the house is the perfect domestic sacrificial angel who takes care of everyone and everything. In your ideal world, would marriage completely disappear? Yes. Marriage as a legal institutional bond between people would 100% disappear. And would you like to see it replaced by something else? I think that we have the capacity to imagine so many different possibilities. But I don't think that people shouldn't have relationships. I don't think that people shouldn't fall in love. I just think that if we if we do away with this idea that there is one type of relationship that is legitimate, that this is the peak of the relationship, this is what you're working, this is what you're trekking up relationship mountain to get to is the marriage. <laughs> That actually makes people make terrible choices. It really does. Clem, what would you say to a woman who tells you she wants to get married? I would ask her why. What is it about marriage in particular that makes you want to do it? I expect that her answer would be something along the lines of, well, I want the security of it, or I think that it is a way of standing up in front of your community and saying that this is the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. If she's honest, she might say that I want the party. Mm -hmm. I want to be celebrated in that way. Um, I would try and establish from her at first what it is that is sort of compelling her towards it. And then I would ask her, well, what? how different would your life be if you didn't do this thing? I know that this book, despite what I would love for it to do, I know that people are going to read it and they may even agree with the arguments in it. But they'll still come out of it and say, but I still want it. Yeah. I still want to do it. Mm. But also it's one of the only ways that women can have success in the world, truly, that it's one of the only things we're allowed to be proud of, that we, we got married, that a man wanted us. And so I talk about in the book, I talk about the wedding as being this one day that women are allowed to unashamedly stand in front of their community and be celebrated. Can I just ask you a question on behalf of listeners who are married and they would argue that their person is a good person who provides support and intimacy and security as well as family. What do you say to those women? I would say I'm very happy for you that you have found someone who doesn't exploit you, who doesn't make you feel less than you are and who supports your ambitions. That is actually a lot rarer than people think. You obviously made a good choice. But if you weren't married, would that change? Would that relationship still have all of those things if you didn't have the ring on your finger? Because if it wouldn't change, then how does marriage make it any different? 
Why is there a persisting view that men run from marriage? They don't want it. No, 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 not me. And women are pursuing it hot for marriage. But at the same time, women who reject marriage, like Mm -hmm. a Chelsea Handler type person, make men furious. Well, because at its heart, men know that they need marriage. Men know that they want marriage. And, you know, there's a lot of people who will make this argument too, that men marry not when they found the right woman, but they marry when they're ready to settle down. They marry when they're ready to have someone else take over the reins at home. They marry when they're ready to have children. Again, it's one of the ways that we also trick women into thinking that we're really lucky to get it. Because if we perpetuate this idea that marriage is something that men only hand out rarely, that men have the control over, that men are incredibly discerning in their tastes and resisted. And so if you get one who wants to do it with you, then you better take it because we know that they don't like it. You better take him up on his offer because you're really, really lucky. Clementine, is what we as women need not marriage but money? Yes. The patriarchal system that we live in, which is also a capitalist system, limits people's choices financially to make them adhere to what it is that they can get from it. So a woman who has fewer financial options than someone who is financially independent may feel like she has no other choice but to either get married or to stay married because she can't financially take care of herself without that second income. Mm. And once she's in the marriage, it becomes even harder for her to leave because everything is tied up with the finances. And a lot of women have been financially, I'm not going to say ruined, but impoverished for sure at the dissolution of a marriage, which again is why I would say before you do it, you have to make it so clear what happens between the two of you if and when that marriage ends. So my mum is Japanese. One of her Mm -hmm. sisters in Tokyo has three adult daughters. They're now in their 50s actually and none of them married or had children. Good for them. And I feel like it's like, well, why the fuck would we, right? right? We're, Mm. We're accomplished, we're beautiful, we're talented, we have friends. Why would we condescend to do this stupid thing. What do you make of changes in places like South Korea and Japan where there's this movement against marriage? I think it's so fascinating and inspiring to see women all over the world who are really not just rejecting this cultural narrative that says that marriage is marriage is the only thing that will kind of elevate us into personhood. Marriage and motherhood in particular will elevate us into personhood and living lives on their own terms, but also proving that women alone are very capable of carving out lives of happiness for themselves. There's, you know, it's not this sort of like terrible, morbid kind of horribly depressing thought that a woman might live by herself at the age of 50. In fact, for a lot of women, it's it's a dream. There are a lot of women who are married who would love to be living by themselves. What's the one thing that you want women to take away from your book, I Don't? This is a book that may be challenging to people, but it's not a personal attack at all. It's that it's a political argument that I want to at least inspire discussion and reflection. And whether or not you stay married, whether or not you go on to be married or not, There is a history here that cannot be denied and you should at least know what it is that you're getting into. Also, leave your husband. (laughs) That was Clementine Ford, author of I Don't and Fight Like a Girl. 
Ladies, we're never going to ask you to sign up to a subscription or donate to a Patreon, but there's a way that you can help support us here at Ladies We Need To Talk that's totally free. If you have a mate who you think might like this podcast, please tell them about it and show them how to listen and follow. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Gundungara and Gadigal peoples. Ladies We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Hannah Achelis. Supervising producers are Alex Lolbach and Tamar Kranswick, and our executive producer is Kyla Slavin. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. Hey, ladies, stop everything you're doing because we need to talk about a podcast I have to recommend. It's hosted by two extremely excellent culture fans, Benjamin Law and Beverly Wang, and it's called Stop Everything. And listen, Ben and Bev have snuck past security and they're here with me in the Ladies We Need to Talk studio. Welcome. Thank you so hey. much. Are we hey, allowed Yumi. to be here? You're here on the day we're re-releasing our episode about friendship and the importance of friendship. Ben, I've heard you describe Bev as your ride or die. Yeah, I mean, I say that just for public optics. We're not friends in real life. No. no. We, we, it all comes out. No. Oh, my God. Beverly and I, I feel like I was a fan of Beverly's and then we were friends and then we were colleagues. It's been a really nice ride, right, Bev? It's, well, God, I don't... Has it, Ben? Has it? <laughs> <laughs> no, Look, we had some crunchy years in the pandemic, but, you know, we got through them. Got through <laughs> them. Look, who didn't have a few crunchy years in the pandemic? I feel the same that... I knew of Ben before I met Ben, but when we met, it felt like we had known each other for for such a long time, and it's been a beautiful friendship and and a work friendship. And I actually think that's one of the best kinds of friends that you can have is, sure is a work is. friend. It's yeah. so deep. It's wonderful. Um, stop everything. Let me tell you about it. It's your one-stop shop for all the latest in film, in TV, in music, internet culture. But it's more than that. I would like to say it's your smart friends talking about all of those things, but sometimes we're not that smart and we take pride smart in that. Friends. <laughs> <laughs> so if you love popular culture, Ben and Beverly will get you up to date on the most fascinating moments that are happening right now with in-depth interviews, whip smart analysis. I did say smart. I meant it. So even though you never go to dinner parties, if you did, you would sound like the most informed in the know person there. Subscribe to Stop Everything on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.